Section 17 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8, The Rebellious Son, Part 2. She was conducted in state by her brother to Dover, and there bade farewell to her kin. In May she landed at Antwerp and was surrounded by a large army which her future lord had sent to guard her. The cities of the Upper Rhine gave her a most royal welcome. The burghers of Cologne turned out some ten thousand strong to meet her on the road and conducted her into their town, which immediately gave itself over to festival and merriment. Here she abode for six weeks until the emperor was sufficiently free from the anxieties of the late rebellion to turn his thoughts to more pleasant matters. From there she proceeded to Worms, where Frederick received her with joy and respect. He was beyond measure delighted with her beauty, continues Wendover, and the marriage was solemnized at that place on Sunday the 20th of July. And although her beauty pleased the emperor at first sight, he was much more pleased after marriage. There were many, however, in the Roman Empire who thought it was degrading for the emperor, who was so powerful and rich, and who was, as it were, the lord and governor of the whole world, to marry the sister of an English king. Which slight upon his country the chronicler resents, and proceeds to point out that Isabella can trace her descent back through a long line of kings to Alfred the Great, and thence in all probability to Adam and Eve. According to the same authority, there were no less than four kings at the imperial wedding, besides eleven dukes, thirty counts and margraves, and many prelates. The emperor, who had a weakness for astrology, awaited the propitious conjunction of the heavenly bodies before he would proceed to the nuptial couch. The fact that seventeen months elapsed before a child was born to him, and that child a girl, must have considerably shaken his faith in the science of his astrologers. A month after his marriage, Frederick held the great Diet of Mayence, where all Germany flocked to do homage to its Kaiser. Only one prince was absent from the mighty throng which attended him. Even the head of the house of Guelph, which for a hundred years had refused to bow the knee to its Hohenstaufen rivals, was among them. Otto, the son of that emperor whom Frederick had overthrown, placed his hands between those of his father's enemy and swore to become his man, and for his submission was created Duke of Brunswick. Six archbishops and twenty-one bishops swore fealty for their temporal possessions. Twelve thousand knights and deputies from every city joined in the acclamations which greeted their Hohenstaufen lord, who had once more favored imperial Germany with his presence. Frederick might gaze on the vast concourse and reflect with some pride that he held his high place not merely by virtue of his descent, but as the prize of his own daring, the fruit of that adventure of his youth, when twenty-three years ago he had crossed the Alps almost alone to regain the heritage of his fathers. No future emperor was to hold the rule of so wide a realm as Frederick at the Diet of Mayence. It was the last exhibition of the Holy Roman Empire in all its pomp and unity. It was the last time that any Caesar saw both Germany and Italy at his feet, 
and was able to scorn the bare idea of foreign interference with his realms, whether to the north or south of the Alps. The Diet was signalized by the promulgation of a revised code of laws called the Constitution of Fifteen Chapters. It consisted, for the most part, of the old German custom, with a few additions by Frederick himself. Although in his southern kingdom the nobles and clergy were stripped of many of their powers, here in the north, where the emperor himself could not always be present to rule with a firm hand, the authority of the princes and higher ecclesiastics was maintained. Among many ordinances of a general character, the new constitution contained a clause which must have been prompted by Frederick's own recent and bitter experience. Ingratitude is always hateful, it ran, especially when a son turns against his father. Whoever strives to eject his father from his possessions, or make a league with his father's enemies, is to lose all right to his personal inheritance, and if a son plots his father's death, he can never be restored to his rights. In accordance with this law, Henry was formally deposed from the kingship of Germany, or the kingship of the Romans, as it was more commonly called. It is probable that the boy Conrad was chosen in his stead, though the election was not made public for two years. A more warlike scene was also enacted before the Diet dissolved. The assembled princes and knights swore to follow their Kaiser against the insolent Lombards, who had added to their long list of injuries by instigating and abetting Henry's rebellion. They had invited him to cross the Alps and promised to invest him with the Iron Crown of Lombardy. They had also harassed the Ghibelline or pro-imperial cities in their neighborhood, and these implored the emperor to avenge them. Frederick declared that if the pope, who had undertaken to mediate between the two antagonists, did not bring the League to an adequate submission before Christmas, he would lead his armies into Lombardy in the following year. Gregory was suspected of underhand dealings with the emperor's rebellious subjects. It is true that he had recently supported Frederick in the suppression of his son's insurrection, but as the head of the church he could hardly avoid the duty of chastising unfilial conduct, unless he wished to fling aside all pretense of holiness and decency. With the independence of northern Italy, on the other hand, his interests were intimately concerned. If once the sturdy cities became meekly submissive to the emperor, he would be hedged in north and south by the imperial power and would have no militant ally to assist him. The Lombards, moreover, had always belonged to the Guelphic or papal party, and it was very natural that Frederick should be skeptical of the sincerity of Gregory's declared efforts to bring them to reason. Such a skepticism was amply justified by later events. The old state of tension in the relations of Pope and Emperor was rapidly reviving, and in the October of 1235 the peace nearly came to a sudden end. Gregory had written to the prelates who had been seduced by Henry from their loyalty to the emperor and upbraided them for their conduct. They were ordered to appear at Rome to answer for their offense. He considered that the punishment of these high ecclesiastics was his own function and not that of their temporal lord. Frederick, however, intervened in the matter, and as the guilty prelates showed no sign of obeying the pope's summons, he forthwith drove them to Rome by threats and commands. At the same time, he appointed one of the royal judges to administer the civil duties of the Bishop of Worms, who was one of the unwilling pilgrims. 
This seems a reasonable enough measure, but in the eyes of Gregory, it was an interference in the church's affairs which was not to be borne. He flew into a violent passion, and Hermann von Salza, who was acting as Frederick's ambassador, had much ado to prevent the fiery old man from launching another excommunication against the emperor, who had dared to lay sacrilegious hands upon the ark. Finally, von Salza soothed the pontifical fury by promising on behalf of his master to replace the royal judge by a papal legate. Frederick spent the winter of 1235 and 6 at his castle of Hagenau, where a brilliant court was assembled. Many foreigners came to witness his splendor, and many nobles from his Burgundian realm of Arles came to pay him homage. He was busily occupied, meanwhile, with warlike preparations, with a view not only to chastising the Lombards, but also to inflicting a salutary lesson upon his namesake, the Duke of Austria. This prince, the most powerful and formidable noble of the empire, had succeeded to the title six years before, and had maintained a sullen and childish antagonism to the emperor without any justification. He had always refused to attend the imperial diets, and was the only prince who was absent from that of Mayence. He had embroiled himself in war with the king of Hungary, a tributary monarch of the empire, and had vexed the neighboring princes with his quarrelsome conduct. His other misdeeds were numerous. His subjects were groaning under his oppression. His mother had been despoiled of all her lands, threatened with barbarous mutilation, and had been compelled to seek refuge in Bohemia, from where she cried aloud to the emperor for vengeance. He had outraged his sister and her husband, the Marquis of Meissen, by surprising the newly wedded pair in bed and taking advantage of their helpless position to wrest from them a renunciation of the dowry which he had agreed to pay to the bride. He was also accused of having formed an alliance with the Lombard rebels. Frederick summoned him for the last time to repair to Hagenau and answer for his many offenses, but he refused to appear. He was accordingly judged in his absence by a council of princes and deprived of all his honors. Fortunately for the Duke of Austria, Frederick was at this time occupied with the approaching Lombard campaign, and could neither lead a punitive expedition against the rebel himself, nor dispatch a great army against him. Such forces, as he was able to spare, however, advanced into Austria, and with the help of the Duke's oppressed subjects, subdued the whole duchy, with the exception of a few strong castles. The duke himself held out in his fortress of Neustadt until the April of 1237, and then, emboldened by the emperor's absence in Italy and by the death of the bishop of Bamberg, who was conducting the campaign against him, he emerged from his retirement and won a great victory over the imperial troops. He was able later to make his peace with the emperor when Frederick was in the throes of conflict with his other enemies. Meanwhile, Gregory was becoming alarmed by the emperor's evident determination to inflict a summary punishment upon the Lombard League. The Christmas of 1235, which Frederick had named as the latest date upon which he would accept the submission of the League, had passed without any success attending Gregory's half-hearted efforts for peace. He then endeavored to distract Frederick's attention by new efforts to arouse a crusade. Although the truce which the emperor had made in Palestine did not expire until 1239, the pope declared 
that preparations should now be commenced for another attempt to expel the Moslems from the Holy Land. Frederick replied to his declaration by the most diplomatic manifesto. Italy is my heritage, he said, and all the world knows it. To covet other men's property and to give up my own would be sinful, especially as the disrespectful insolence of the Italians has provoked me. Moreover, I am a Christian and am ready to overcome the foes of the cross. Heresies have sprung up and are growing thick in Italy, which abounds in arms, horses, and wealth, as all the world knows. This insistence on the prevalence of heresy in northern Italy, which was notorious throughout Europe, placed the Pope in a difficult position. For unless he helped the Emperor in his campaign against the heretics, he exposed the insincerity of his zeal for orthodoxy. If he actually lent assistance to the Lombards, he proclaimed to all Christendom that he placed the temporal interests of his office above the spiritual welfare of Christianity. On the other hand, if he gave countenance to the cause of the emperor, he helped to destroy his last rampart against imperial power. There was, however, no doubt which alternative a medieval pope would choose. For the time being, Gregory was content to work secretly against Frederick, but later he was to cast in his lot openly with the Lombards and ignore the taint of heresy with which they were besmirched in the eyes of Christendom. We have an English churchman's opinion of Gregory's duplicity in the Chronicles of Matthew Paris. Footnote. At this time, the contemporary history of Matthew Paris, the chronicler of St. Albans, first becomes available. It abounds with references to Frederick, and is especially valuable because it gives us a foreign opinion of the struggle between the emperor and the pope. Paris is perhaps the most impartial contemporary authority we have on a question which, even in our own day, has excited the most violent prejudices of historical writers. As an ecclesiastic, he is shocked by the emperor's attitude toward religion and by his lack of respect for the ancient privileges of the church. As a patriot, he resents the papal extortions in England. His views are thus tempered by two opposing influences. End footnote. The Pope, he writes, referring to Frederick's manifesto, on hearing such profound reasonings, in order that he might not seem opposed to such incontrovertible arguments, pretended to give his consent, and that the Emperor might cross the mountains and enter Italy according to his purpose, his holiness promised, without fail as far as he was able, to afford his paternal assistance in every necessity. The Milanese, not without reason, fearing the emperor's terrible anger, sent to the pope asking advice and effectual assistance from him, and he, after receiving a large sum of money with a promise of more, sent them much relief and assistance to the injury of the emperor. And this seemed incredible and contrary to everyone's opinion, that in such case of necessity the father should be converted into a stepfather. Much correspondence passed between Frederick and Gregory before the Italian campaign commenced, and on Gregory's side it frequently reached an acrimonious tone. The emperor, on one occasion, inferred that the pope's own conscience must reproach him for a certain act. You have no business, replied Gregory, to pry into the secrets of our conscience. Our judge is in heaven. The priests of Christ, he declared, were the fathers and masters of all faithful kings. Christian emperors 
must submit themselves not merely to the supreme pontiff, but to all other bishops. Constantine had realized that the Pope ought to be endowed with temporal sovereignty, and had bestowed the Western Empire on the Popes, transferring his own throne to Greece. The Popes had delegated the Empire to Charlemagne and his successors. The Apostolic See was the judge of the whole world, and could be judged by none save God. The emperor must beware of the doom of Uzziah and the tribe of Kohath, who were smitten for laying hands upon the ark. Frederick replied to this amazing piece of arrogance and to the other papal missives in a tone of moderation and reason. He had no wish to precipitate the inevitable rupture by allowing a just reign to his indignation. End of section 17.